and that the internet church is going to be the place where some people will actually stick around and it's going to be their worship home. But the goal is not to leave them there if they're local. The goal is to bring them. I used to think they would go from the internet church to a to the worship service, but we're finding out more and more they're going from the internet church into groups. Welcome to another episode of Law and Church, a podcast for church leaders. My name is Brian Fitton. I'm here with Josh Bryant, managing attorney at Church General Counsel and an ordained pastor. Josh, I'm really excited about our episode today. You had a great interview with Dr. Tom Rayner, and uh, you guys talked a lot about you know technology and church, and you know paying attention to data security. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that. Well, you know what they say: the devil is in the technology, right? <laughs> so it's something that certainly we're going to have to talk about because you know the devil's in the lawyers too, right? Yeah. So hey, add those two <laughs> together, and you got a big problem here. No, no, we really do need to be paying attention, and even more attention, I should say, to uh, just the the way we use technology in the church, and that's it, really getting to get to the point to where there's a lot of crossover between the technology and the law, and there's, there's a, those two are going to intersect. And um, you know, a lot of the calls that I get uh, on on technology issues have to do a lot of times with copyrights, and you know, can we broadcast on Facebook? Can we do a Facebook Live or uh, whatever? Since we've got music that's playing and so forth and so on. But, you know, one of the things, just last month I was in a continuing legal education course uh, that was talking about website terms and conditions, um, which is a big deal. I mean, when you think about all of the data that churches collect online, uh, and, and, you know, you can get registration, you can do, especially if you have like an online campus, a lot of times you're doing your entire connection card electronically where you're mm-hmm. getting names, address, dates of birth, phone numbers, email address. Uh, you're looking at donation histories and all this other stuff that can be accessed online. Uh, and so there's a data security component to that, but at the same time, there's a privacy policy component to it, uh, where you've got to be able to tell your your constituents and the people that are interacting with your website, uh, this is what we're going to do with that data, and we're not going to sell that data, and so forth and so on. Uh, you know, and as we get even more globalized, there's going to come a point to where churches will start collecting that data from people who are in the European Union, and when you do that, now you are subject to an EU law called GDPR, and it is complex, and it is complicated, uh, and it's going to put a whole lot of uh, requirements on churches, but if you are online and you have a a website and somebody from the European Union uh, inputs data into your website or logs into your website, then you are subject to those European Union laws. Uh, And so there's just a whole lot that we're going to have to start doing as churches to make sure that our technology is compliant with the latest data security, uh, that it's compliant with privacy policies, and that your terms of use are are up to snuff so that if somebody is um, on your website and they want to sue you for some reason on your website and your social media posts and all those things, uh, that all has to be uh, updated and ready to go. Uh, You know, one of the things out there that churches are probably not ready for is ADA compliance. there is now the Americans with Disabilities Act that requires certain things out of websites. Uh, and so it's it's going to be necessary for us to just make sure that all of those things are compliant and ready to go uh, so that we don't run into problems with people suing the church because we don't have an ADA compliant website or uh, we don't have good policies uh, that are public on what we do with social media posts um, on the church's social media uh, channels and platforms that 
doesn't align with uh, something that we would want on those platforms. Uh, and so we just have to have all that stuff ready to go and kind of know what we're going to do before we run into a problem and have to kind of guess at what we're doing. Absolutely. And privacy is such a hot topic right now in the news and especially in businesses that churches are not paying attention to this. And so I think it's great that you uh, dove into that with uh, Dr. Todd Rainer. Uh, let's go ahead and jump into that interview right now. Sounds good. Our guest is Dr. Tom Rayner. He's the founder and CEO of Church Answers. That's an online community and resource for church leaders. Before founding Church Answers, Dr. Rayner was the president and CEO of Lifeway Christian Resources. He served for 12 years as the uh, at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he was the founding dean of the Billy Graham School of Missions and Evangelism. He's written more than two dozen books, uh, amazing books for church leaders, all of which will be available in the show notes below. So one of the things that I've advocated for a while now is uh, getting out in front of our cultural trends. Uh, For example, there are some churches who really need to start taking a look at getting out in front of sexual orientation and gender identity laws. And, uh, you know, we've seen a a trend right now where courts are starting to sidestep some First Amendment issues and start using uh, business law principles to get a little bit more involved and probably over-involved in the internal affairs of the church. And so our guest today uh, is an expert. He's a researcher of where churches are heading and what the future might look like. And we've discussed some of these trends uh, and legal issues as they started to pop out before. And so, for example, growing churches really have to start paying attention to property laws uh, and and the business organizations laws in, in terms of how we go out and acquire real estate and how we set up our churches in terms of our businesses. At the same time, tech-savvy churches are going to have to pay attention to some more data security issues, intellectual property laws, and 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 really just a hodgepodge of, of privacy laws that are starting to pop up all over the world. Shrewd churches are going to have to start paying attention to some tax laws. Uh, I know there's some churches out there doing some inventive things, but that may trigger some tax uh, consequences. And then finally, senior citizens churches are going to have to pay attention to changes in legacy giving, uh, those patterns and estate laws, uh, as well as may have some interesting employment contacts. We're going to talk about all that today with Dr. Rayner. Dr. Rayner, welcome. Thanks, Josh. Good to see you, dude. Good to see you too, sir. Uh, let's jump right in. Uh, what do you forecast uh, in terms of church growth strategies? We talked about horizontal growth versus vertical growth. Can you explain that to us and kind of tell us what you foresee coming down the road? Vertical growth is the traditional growth that we have seen in many of our churches, which means if you just want to talk about it in terms of worship attendance, as an example, worship growth would be how many people are in worship service in one particular service. That would be vertical growth. You can just continue to fill up that one container, if you will. Uh, A hybrid of this is multiple services. I still consider that uh, vertical growth because it depends upon the same volunteers, usually the same amount of parking. It gives you a little more space in uh, the worship center, but I consider that more vertical growth. You're still filling up the same container, if you will, even though that container is available just a little bit more for um, uh, other worship services. But the pure type of horizontal growth, which is filling, uh, going to different containers, not just the same container, would be such things as multi-site, multi-campus, multi-venue, anything where you are not growing in that same container or that same venue where you were. This has become a huge movement across North America. It's uh, certainly been a movement that has been uh, pervasive in other countries just because they don't have physical facilities, Mm -hmm. but it has become a huge movement here. And I know that they're legal implications are related to that. I have referred 
uh, some to you, uh, Josh, where they're just they're they're looking at, hey, we're about to acquire another church, or we're about to uh, merge, or we're going to acquire the property of another church, that type of horizontal growth. Are we going to start a church in a in a um, uh, commercial area, and, and the implications behind that? There are obviously financial implications. There are obviously ecclesiological implications, but there are legal implications as well, and that's why I have referred them to you. On, on, on more than one occasion. So horizontal growth is basically a different container. Now, I, I want to provide some information to your listeners in case people are saying, is this trend changing? I'm getting that question, is horizontal growth, multi-site, multi-venue, all that, is that changing because of really two churches that have decided that they're going to pull back their multi-site into a single site? Uh, one of those was Village Church, and I think that had a lot to do with some of the ecclesiological uh, philosophy of Village Church. And then another one more recently announced is Mecklenburg and the uh, Charlotte area. Uh, both of those churches had unique circumstances where they are pulling churches back into one. For example, at Mecklenburg, uh, they, they have a they have an interstate branch that is coming that they've been waiting on for years that's going to allow everybody in their other campuses to drive now very quickly to that one campus. Their multi-site system was not necessarily the, the an ethnically diverse or a, or a socioeconomically diverse or a language diverse. It was more monolithic, but they just, they needed people in closer proximity. Now that they're opening this spur up, they're bringing everybody back to the one site where they have all this, this acreage. I just simply want to say to your listening audience who may think the trend is reversing, it is not. Don't take an outlier, R2, R3, and say a trend is established. Both of those churches are good, healthy churches with good, healthy leaders, but they had very specific reasons why they were doing it. Uh, a good example uh, would be, say, uh, where Jimmy Scroggins is the pastor family church in South Florida, where the original campus was in West Palm. Every one of his multi-site, every one of their is, is a neighborhood church that is, has its own pastor that is usually bivocational or marketplace vocational, such as a physician. Mm-hmm. And they are reaching people who could not be reached at the single site, people in that neighborhood. So, and I think they're, they're in double digit campuses. I was about to say 14, but I don't know that for a fact. They're in double digit campuses. And that to me is the type, I, I would really say that the multi-site movement is going to be further embraced as the neighborhood church movement. And you know, son, Sam, mm-hmm. that yep. is, that is son, that Sam Rainer is really, really becoming an authority on the neighborhood church. And they, they have just acquired their second church uh, where he is serving as a pastor in Bradenton, Florida. So they're going to the neighborhood model as well. Lots of implications behind this, not the least of which is legal. And that's why I'm pointing more and more people to you, Josh, as uh, this begins to unfold. Well, we certainly appreciate it. We uh, have certainly seen an uptick in the number of mergers uh, and consolidations and acquisitions that that we've done. Uh, and just a few episodes uh, ago, we had Jim Tomberlin on, uh, who's the author of Better Together, great book on church mergers from a, a very practical standpoint, uh, certainly a great resource. And uh, we see these mergers and, and churches coming together. It kind of be interesting sometime to see, you know, as we saw more churches split, it seems to me in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s that now we're kind of seeing maybe a consolidation of that. You know, one statistic I saw uh, suggested that there were up to 60% of churches 
who were uh, in facilities that they could not support, uh, that they could not uh, maintain those churches. And so you've got just backlogs and backlogs of deferred maintenance that have to be done. Uh, And so until some of uh, those churches can become more healthy and revitalized, which I know you're uh, very active in church revitalization, uh, I think I agree with you. We're going to see more and more multi-site, more and more mergers, and and more and more churches coming alongside other churches and helping them uh, grow and get healthy. I'm not familiar with the research that has a 60%. I'll just simply say I'm surprised it's that low. When I talk to Tim Kulsev, Cool Solutions Group, whose specialty is that, mm-hmm. Tim Tim tells me again and again, it's his is anecdotal, but it's like 9 out of 10 do not have sufficient reserves set aside for deferred maintenance. Wow. Yeah. It just that That's billions and billions and billions of dollars of real estate that's, that's kind of not being taken care of and maintained well. Well, so – Kind of in that same vein, we're seeing technology change by the second. Uh, how do you see technology in the internet church, uh, if, or internet uh, capabilities and, and meeting capabilities? How do you see that affecting churches in the future? Well, you changed your question because you said internet church, and then you said internet capabilities. <laughs> and I know that there's a reason why you changed that because you didn't want to define it right away. But that first question was prescient, actually. The first question is internet church. What is the internet church? Mm-hmm. Is it a separate congregation into itself? Is it a legitimate expression of the in-person or physically present church? Those are some questions that have not been answered. But I'll tell you this. If you're going to be reaching Gen Z, you better have some presence that is there. Absolutely. And I have, I have made my own predictions on this. And I, I am not the sharpest pencil in, 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 in the uh, pencil well. And I am not the brightest bulb in the chandelier. So hear, hear me well on this. But one thing that I can do fairly decently is I can look at outliers and I can see connections between those outliers that then begin to form trends. And one of the predictions that I have made about the Internet church is that it will basically become the beginning of a funnel. Some people are going to cringe at that word funnel because it sounds like some type of secular marketing uh, philosophy. But I, I literally mean that it's going to become like a funnel and that the Internet church is going to be the place where some people will actually stick around and it's going to be their worship home. But the goal is not to leave them there if they're local. The goal is to bring them. I used to think they would go from the Internet church to a to the worship service. But we're finding out more and more they're going from the Internet church into groups and then to the worship service. Mm-hmm. There, once again, to go back to what we why we're on this podcast, there are a lot of legal issues uh, related to that. If a pastor preaches a sermon and it goes and it's and it's uh, out in the digital world, who owns it? Does the pastor? Does the church? What can what can a listener do with that? Mm-hmm. Uh, once again, let them come to you and figure those things out because there are a lot of there are a lot of legal issues uh, that, that that are there. Uh, what are the legal liability issues that are out there in the internet church world? I don't have the answers to that, but we better start looking for some answers because the more and more the digital church world becomes a reality, the more we have to deal with them. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, we've got to get out in front of some of these trends and these waves that are coming. You know, the intellectual property issue, I think, is a big deal. I've had a few churches and pastors kind of disagree with one another when a pastor wanted to take sermons and turn them into a book and uh, or you know, vice versa. Uh, you know, so those intellectual property concerns are out there. Certainly, uh, you know, there could be some uh, liabilities in terms of data security. There can be some liabilities in terms of, you know, just how we broadcast information. There may be some things that we don't 
that some people don't want everybody to know, and now it's on the internet out there for the world to see. Uh, and certainly, as as the world gets smaller and smaller because of technology, and we start talking about missions, and now we're in a position where we can really get uh, some missionaries in trouble if they're in restricted areas, and we're we're talking openly about that. So that's a great point. That's a great. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff we've got to do on that. I'm going to jump into today's featured resource for church leaders, uh, the Revitalized Network. Uh, they empower churches to greater health together. The Revitalized Network launched with the focus of reviving hurting, declining, and dying churches with consultations, coaching, and resources to help hurting churches. Each congregation can have a pathway to restored health and a rekindled passion for their local community. You can learn more about the Revitalized Network and the breadth of their resources at revitalizednetwork.org. And Dr. Rand, I know you're very involved in the Re- Revitalized Network, and I believe your son Sam is leading that effort. Uh, What are some new things going on there? Well, the Revitalized Network Convention coming up in 2020. And um, uh, you can can check me on this before you put it in your show notes, Josh, but I think it's uh, revitalized2020.com, I believe Mm -hmm. is is the site for this. Uh, It'll be the first of many biannual conventions uh, that that we will have. It'll be in Bradenton, Florida. And um, one, one thing that I was going to be talking to you off air, we fully uh, want to invite you because you're already a major supporter of a revitalized network. We want to invite you to be there to uh, have displays and uh, just just be ready to go at revitalize uh, at revitalized network. Uh, if anybody wants to be a part of the revitalized network convention, we're having to limit it to 500 people. It's going to sell out. There's absolutely no doubt about that. The, the waiting list will probably be double the size of the actual numbers who come. But we wanted to have our first Revitalized Network convention at a revitalizing neighborhood church. Absolutely. So instead of a big venue and and something that could accommodate the 1,500 to 2,000 people that we think will want to come, we said, let's let's keep this first one to five, five, 500, I should say, to make it a statement of who we are. So that's what's going on with Revitalized Network. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. That's great. I actually bought my ticket today. So if I need to release that, let me know. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to go. That's going to be a great, great event. So let's jump into our next one. Uh, what do you think about the prospect of church and business partnerships and, and for-profit activities taking place on the church? Where do you see that heading? Let's let's talk about two ways of looking at it. Let's. Uh, I don't want to call it the pro and the con. I want to call it the opportunity and then the caution. Maybe that would be a better way. The opportunities are unlimited. Um, church facilities are some of the most unused facilities in America today. I mean, yep. particularly during weekdays, but even on Sunday afternoons and it, for many churches Sunday evening. I mean, it is it is all of the space. To Call it wasted may be an overstatement, but just say highly unused space. Mm-hmm. The more that uh, churches can start partnering with for-profit institutions, with businesses, whether it's on the new building part or just going backwards and doing so, the more I think we're not only going to see wise use of funds, which is huge, the wise use of facilities, which is huge, but also an opportunity to impact the community because the community will be connected to the church. Okay, so that's the opportunity. Obviously, the cautions out there are very real is because you have tax implications. You have unrelated business income. and But I, I, I don't think that one should scare away uh, a church leader, nor do I think the property tax exemption issue should, should scare away a church leader. For these two reasons, I have been a part of a, a nonprofit that has had unrelated business income, that has had property tax exemptions. And what happens when we put a for-profit 
uh, embedded within that not-for-profit. We pay taxes on the unrelated business income, just like mm -hmm. it's a for-profit on that portion of it. What happens to the space where they are? We pay property taxes on that space, but not on the rest of the space. And the and the governing authority, whoever's responsible for those taxes and for that income, comes and tells you, this is how much you have to pay. And I would say, don't be scared away from it. Find someone, and again, when someone comes to me and says, I'm looking at a church and I'm worried about property tax issues, I'm worried about unrelated business income, I say, go see Josh. He'll point you in the right direction. Uh, he may point you to a CPA. A lover. He may have to, uh, and I'm talking about you, Josh. I mean, you may have to find someone uh, locally, but he can point you in the right direction. It is an opportunity, but you need to proceed with caution that you don't make missteps along the way. Right. Exactly. Uh, have you ever heard of a benefit corporation? It's kind of a new thing in the law that's come out recently. I have benefit not. Corporation. So traditional business law, you know, Delaware uh, seems to be where everybody incorporates just because there's just a mass body of case law for corporations and LLCs out of the state of Delaware. Well, there are several corporations and companies who got kind of tired of the courts always siding with the shareholder, saying, you you know, your shareholder or your key constituent, that's your primary uh, duty. And so what the Delaware legislature did is invent something called a benefit corporation, which has a legal framework and a statutory framework in which you can have constituencies that are as important or more important than your shareholders. Uh, and, and so it kind of you, you have to register as a benefit corporation. There are certain filing requirements that you have to have. There's a lot of states who have adopted these benefit corporations. Some of the downside are those filing requirements that you, you have to talk about your environmental impact and how you treat your employees because, you know, certainly want to treat your employees as well as we treat your, our shareholders and so forth. But I can see some interesting partnerships there or some interesting correlations between what we do as churches and what a, a benefit corporation can uh, eventually take advantage of. You know, and one of the best things about a benefit corporation is even though it requires additional filing, at least in Arkansas and in several other states, there's really no retaliation or there's no recourse if you don't file or you don't do things properly. Uh, they didn't, didn't build that into the system. Now, that we can't rely on that not being there uh, in the future. But uh, anyways, could be some interesting, interesting things there. All right. Last question. Uh, we have a generation of folks that are aging and starting to retire, uh, the boomer generation. Uh, how do you think uh, this aging population and the fact that this population is going to live uh, quite a bit longer by all estimates and forecasts, how do you think that's going to affect churches here in the next few years? Well, thanks for calling me old. <laughs> oh, now. Here, here, here I am, born in 1955 and right in the middle of that boomer generation. And you know, Josh, after this podcast is over, I'm so exhausted. I'm going to have to go take a few naps because of, my, <laughs> because of my elderly status. The boomer generation born between 1946 and 64. Here's a, here's a fun little fact about them. 76 million live births during that period, 46 to 64. All right, Josh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to become the questioner and you have to guess an answer, okay? Okay. There were 76 million live births, 46 to 64. How many boomers are left today? 60 million. All right. The number is 76 million. Wow. Net immigration. Okay. The net immigration of boomer age people matches the deaths of the, 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 the boomer age generation. So there's still 76 million of us. Mm -hmm. we, won't, we won't go away. Y'all try to get rid of us and, and we're not going away. Now here's, here's the thing about this. And by the way, uh, son art Rainer is, mm -hmm 
all over this. And he's, he's become, uh, Dr. Art Rayner has become kind of the, the financial guru for, for Christians in so many areas. Uh, I know Ramsey's got a big, big platform, but Art's just up and coming uh, uh, with the younger ones. And he's, he's all over this. And, uh, as, as uh, Nellie, Joe, and I over the years have uh, updated wheels, whether through codicils or just redoing entire new wheels when we uh, leave somewhere, uh, I'm not going to get into the terms of what our wheels have, obviously. But, you know, he said, Dad, on the financial end, it doesn't really matter. He said, we're not going to benefit from you guys at all. He said, by the time y'all croak, his words, not mine, by the time you guys croak, uh, we'll, be so, we'll be so old that we can't enjoy the benefits. Maybe the grandkids can. His point is well taken. Mm-hmm. Because of longevity, the, what we often depended on in some of our churches, and we didn't depend on it enough, I'll say that, was some type of legacy giving um, where uh, when, when, when someone died, they'd leave something to the church. But again, I can put some parenthetical comments in there. I don't think we were ever, I don't think we've ever been uh, as proactive about that as we should be in our churches. But uh, he, he, he said, um, th- this is going to change, and so we have to look at stewardship because if we counted on, if we counted on legacy gifts, we counted on deaths to fund our churches, it may not come in the way it has in the past. There may be a different pattern dealing with longevity. So what are churches doing? What, what are churches doing to ask their members, hey, can you, can you uh, consider prayerfully putting in your will that something is given to a church when uh, given to the church when I die. Pastors and others shouldn't be fearful of that because you got college presidents, nonprofit leaders and others that are asking them, why not you? You know, why not mm-hmm. you in the church as well? So there are multiple implications that are there. One is the, the recurring type of path of this legacy giving is going to change. That's one. Two, we need churches that are more proactive for when that happens to be able to do something about that. And three, again, pointing back to you, how do we legally set this up so that we can have some type of, of assurance that we are going about this the right way? Or how can we help our members legally set this up? So again, points back to a lot of legal issues, Josh. It does. You, you know, one of the things that I've seen, uh, one ministry in particular, but I've heard of others have to deal with is the fact that they set up these charitable remainder trusts, which is in short, just a trust in which you make a gift uh, during life to a nonprofit organization, but then you retain an annuity, kind of an annual payment uh, off of that trust. Uh, well, they set those trusts up in such a fashion that the person outlived uh, what they expected. And now the corpus of the trust or the the main principle of the trust is gone and the these nonprofit organizations are actually having to spend their own personal money to, to maintain their end of the uh, of the bargain on some of these things and so we're wow. gonna have yeah exactly we're gonna have continued planned giving um, issues and you know these are some things that we also talked about just a few weeks ago uh, with Jim Shepard from generis he was uh, he was on with us a couple of times and so great uh, great organization. Absolutely, absolutely. We were privileged to have him on, and so lots of lots of stuff coming down the pipe. Uh, we certainly appreciate your wisdom and insight, uh, and uh, foresight, I should say, uh, and seeing what these churches are going to be uh, facing here soon. And if there's obviously anything that we can do to help here at Church General Council, we are always happy to do so. Well, Doctor Rayner, thank you so much. I appreciate all your time today. Joshua, it is uh, Joshua. Josh, <laughs> I guess you are Joshua. Hey, I'm, I'm a lawyer. I've answered to a lot worse. <laughs> yeah.
<laughs> I got that. Josh, thank you uh, for having me, and thank you for this uh, podcast. It was good to be on the inaugural edition, and it's good to be on this one as well. Best to you as you continue to grow this ministry. Wow, what a fantastic interview. Uh, Josh, any last thoughts on that? You know, one of the things that really stuck out uh, was some of the statistics uh, that we talked about, specifically in regards to churches having to pay attention to tax laws when they start to partner with for-profit organizations. You you know, that statistic is that uh, 61% of all church buildings in the United States house congregations that cannot financially maintain their building. And so you've got almost 200,000 churches, if not more than 200,000 churches at this point, that have billions and billions of dollars of deferred maintenance that's that we're just not up keeping those uh, the, uh, keeping up those properties uh, and, and so I think that's a great solution to that particular uh, opportunity uh, that, that we've got out there is to have some of those partnerships where we're sharing space where we're using church buildings in the middle of the week uh, that's generating additional income that we're not scared off by the tax consequences of that that will pay the tax listen if you are able to bring in $10,000 a year uh, and you have to pay $2,000 in taxes, your budget just increased by $8,000, okay? And if we multiplied that by five and you brought in $50,000 and you have to pay eight or $10,000 in taxes, well, you just raised enough money to pay somebody's salary. Uh, and so I think it's important that we at least consider those things and consider some of those partnerships. Uh, specifically with like-minded small business owners or other uh, businesses that we may uh, lease space out to or whatever, uh, not get scared away by those tax consequences uh, and then utilize that uh, additional source of revenue to make sure that we're maintaining our properties or being good stewards with what God's brought us. Josh, tell us a little bit about what you've got going on over at Church Council. You know, we talk an awful lot about processes and how those processes can protect your church, but doing it well is really time consuming. And so as a result, there are a lot of churches that are operating unprotected with few or no documented procedures and policies, not to mention the state of many churches bylaws. Uh, And as the world becomes more litigious, church leaders are going to need a simple, affordable, expert way to protect their churches with good policies and procedures. And Church General Council offers that a customized online policy and process manual that also serves as a cloud-based training platform for volunteers and staff. You'll have access to an attorney like myself that focuses on church law, and that is all included with this system. So go check that out at churchgeneralcouncil.com. Hey, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Law & Church. Make sure you check out lawandchurch.com for all the resources, show notes, links. Everything is available for you there. And if you'd like to connect with us, go over to facebook.com, search the Church Esquire Club. There's all sorts of opportunities for you there. And thanks so much for joining us. We will see you next week. 